York. This is Democracy Now! There's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. In a primetime speech in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, President Biden warns Donald Trump and his MAGA supporters are threatening the foundations of the nation. We'll speak to Duke Professor Nancy McLean, author of Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right's stealth plan for America. Then as millions of Californians face an extreme heat wave, we'll go to Los Angeles to look at the city's most vulnerable, the unhoused. When the pandemic hit in Congress, we knew who was going to be impacted the most, and we fought hard to send resources to Los Angeles. It's not just at the height of the pandemic, but homelessness has continued, and we need to have this support on an ongoing basis. There are 60,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County, in a region where 20,000 hotel rooms remain vacant every night. We'll look at plans to connect the two. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Joe Biden warned in a primetime speech Thursday Donald Trump and his supporters pose an existential threat to democracy in the United States. Biden spoke in Philadelphia in front of Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence and U.S. Constitution were debated and signed. As I stand here tonight, equality and democracy are under assault. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Biden's remarks came less than 10 weeks before the midterm elections, when control of both the House and the Senate are at stake. After headlines, we'll air extended clips of Biden's speech and get response from Duke University professor Nancy McLean. A federal judge in Washington, D.C., has sentenced a former New York City police officer to 10 years in prison after he was filmed attacking a Capitol Police officer with a flagpole during the January 6, 2021, insurrection. Thomas Webster's sentence is the longest of about 250 handed down so far against people who followed then-President Donald Trump's order to march on the Capitol to prevent Congress from certifying Joe Biden's election victory. Meanwhile, the House Select Committee probing the January 6th attack has asked Newt Gingrich to testify, saying the former Republican House Speaker helped to incite the anger of Trump supporters by repeatedly making false claims about the 2020 election. Newly revealed public records show the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas pressured Republican lawmakers in Wisconsin to overturn Joe Biden's 2020 victory. Emails show that two days after media outlets called the election for Biden, Ginny Thomas messaged a Wisconsin state representative and the chair of the Wisconsin Senate Elections Committee, asking them to, quote, take action to ensure that a clean slate of electors is chosen for our state, unquote. 
The Washington Post previously reported Ginny Thomas emailed 29 Arizona lawmakers asking them to choose an alternative slate of pro-Trump presidential electors. The revelations have prompted calls for Justice Clarence Thomas to step down or face impeachment. But so far, he's refused to recuse himself from cases related to the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection, even though his wife took part in the January 6th so-called Stop the Steal rally in Washington, D.C., in Ukraine. Inspectors with the U.N.'s International Atomic Energy Agency arrived at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant after intense shelling near the site delayed their arrival by several hours. IAEA chief Rafael Grossi said after touring the site, the physical integrity of the plant had been repeatedly violated by fighting between Russia and Ukraine. In Moscow, Russia's defense ministry accused Ukraine of nuclear terrorism by continuing to fire artillery at the nuclear complex. In Kyiv, President Volodymyr Zelensky hailed the IAEA's visit but said Russian soldiers had blocked inspectors from entering the power plant's crisis center. He called for the establishment of demilitarized zones near Ukraine's nuclear sites. For more than three decades, our specialists have managed five facilities, the Chernobyl station and four working nuclear power plants. The IAEA had never had concerns regarding the activities of any of these facilities until Russia invaded our territory and brought its madness here. Ukraine denies its shelling Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. In Moscow, the chair of the Russian energy giant Luke Oil has died under mysterious circumstances. Russia's TASS news agency reported Ravel Maganov fell from the six-story window of a Moscow hospital Thursday morning, then later reported he had taken his own life. Maganov presided over a meeting of Luke Oil's board shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine in February, where board members called for a speedy end to the conflict and expressed sympathy for the war's victims. The Luke Oil chair is the latest of several high-profile Russian business elites to die under unusual circumstances in recent months. Russia's begun live-fire military exercises involving troops from China and other nations. The week-long war games in Russia's Far East and the Sea of Japan involve some 50,000 troops from Russia, China, several former Soviet republics, as well as Algeria, Syria, Mongolia, Laos and Nicaragua. India also sent a small 75-soldier-strong contingent to join the drills. This comes as a combined force of South Korean and U.S. troops are staging their largest live-fire exercises in years, less than 20 miles from North Korea's border. And just two weeks after troops from Australia and Canada joined U.S.-led war games with off the coast of Hawaii with the militaries of South Korea and Japan. Taiwan's government says it shot down a civilian drone from China for the first time. On Thursday, Taiwan's prime minister said his government had taken the appropriate response to repeated incursions by pilotless aircraft crossing the Taiwan Strait. 
China has drones flying into our country, and they even take videos to send back for use as internal propaganda. We have repeatedly warned and repeatedly asked China not to invade and intrude. Also, the Taiwanese people feel resentment towards these actions. In Afghanistan, uh, at least 18 people were killed today um, and 21 injured in an explosion at a mosque in the western Afghan city of Herat. The blast went off during Friday noon prayers. The dead included the prominent cleric Majib-ur-Rahman Ansari, who was close to the Taliban. He's the second pro-Taliban cleric to be killed over the past month in Argentina. Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner survived an apparent assassination attempt outside her home in Buenos Aires Thursday evening. Video from the scene shows Kirchner greeting supporters when a man suddenly points a pistol in her face at point-blank range. The weapon apparently misfires, and after several seconds of confusion, the attacker is taken into custody. Police later named the gunman as 35-year-old Brazilian man who's lived in Argentina since 1993 and has a history of carrying weapons. His motive remains unknown. The attack came just days after prosecutors called for a 12-year prison sentence and a ban on public office for Kirchner, who is accused of a scheme to divert public funds during her term as president from 2007 to 2015. Kirchner denies the charges. In Chile, thousands of people rallied in the capital, Santiago, Thursday evening as campaigns, both for and against a new constitution, came to a close ahead of a national referendum on Sunday. Voters will decide whether to replace the constitution created under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, who came to power in a 1973 coup supported by the United States. Chile's new draft constitution enshrines human rights and social programs, including free universal access to health care, higher education and reproductive rights. This is Carlos Diaz, president of the Chilean Teachers College. The teachers of Chile on the 4th of September will vote, I approve, because we will finally have a constitution where education is conceived as a fundamental human right. The niece of a Palestinian-American journalist who was shot dead by Israeli troops is demanding the Biden administration launch a formal independent investigation into her killing. On May 11th, Shireen Abu Akla was wearing a press uniform while reporting on an Israeli army raid in the occupied West Bank when she was fatally shot in the head. A number of media organizations, including CNN, The New York Times, Al Jazeera, have all determined the Israeli military killed Abu Akla. Her niece, Lena Abu Akla, spoke from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Thursday, after it honored Shireen with a posthumous award. Lena said President Joe Biden has done nothing to hold Israel accountable for her aunt's killing. He still has not uh, taken action. He does not—he continues to ignore the importance of this case. And um, most importantly, he isn't upholding the values that he continues to preach. 
The number of sexual assaults reported by U.S. military service members rose by 13 percent last year. That's according to the Associated Press, citing U.S. defense and military officials, who blamed a rollback for coronavirus restrictions for the rise in sexual violence. In a survey, nearly 36,000 military members reported they'd experienced unwanted sexual contact. That's almost double the number reported in 2018. California state lawmakers have approved $54 billion in new spending to combat the climate crisis. The legislation puts new limits on oil and gas drilling and orders California to transition to 90 percent renewable electricity by 2035. It also provides billions of dollars for electric vehicles and controversially postpones the planned closure of California's last nuclear power reactors at the half-century-old Diablo Canyon power plant plant south of Los Angeles. Construction of the nuclear plant began in 1968. Several seismic fault lines have since been discovered near the site, prompting fears an earthquake or tsunami could trigger a disaster like the 2011 meltdowns in Fukushima, Japan. A warning to our audience, our next story contains graphic images and descriptions of police violence. In Columbus, Ohio, the family of an unarmed black man shot dead by police in his own apartment is calling for the officer responsible to be held accountable. Early Tuesday morning, 20-year-old Donovan Lewis was fatally shot by an officer just one second after police burst through the door to his bedroom to arrest him, they said, on outstanding warrants. Body cam footage shows Officer Ricky Anderson, a 30-year police veteran, shot Lewis just a second after opening the door to his bedroom. Officers then handcuffed Lewis, who died less than an hour later at a hospital. Rex Elliott is an attorney for Donovan Lewis's family. Donovan was unarmed. And he was abiding by police commands to come out of his room when he was shot in cold blood by Officer Anderson. There was no justification, let me be clear, no justification for Officer Anderson to shoot an unarmed man trying to get out of bed as police officers were instructing him to do. And U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders has joined a rally of striking British rail workers in London, saying workers need to stand together to fight against corporate greed and billionaires amassing more wealth. It's the latest in a series of strikes impacting Britain's transport network over the summer, with workers demanding better pay and working conditions in response to high inflation. What we have seen is a massive distribution of wealth going in exactly the wrong way. The middle class is shrinking and the people on top are getting wealthier. Our job is to take on these oligarchs and our job is to imagine a world of justice. It is not radical. It is not radical to say that every worker in the UK and in the United States is entitled to a decent standard of living. That's not a radical idea. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders speaking in Britain. And tune in to our Labor Day show on Monday when we bring you a Howard's Inn special, including a major address he gave at the University of Vermont, Burlington. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Coming up, 
President Joe Biden warns Donald Trump and his MAGA supporters pose an existential threat to democracy. We'll get response from Duke University professor Nancy McLean. Stay with us. I never loved nobody fully. Always one foot on the ground. Gina Spector. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden gave a primetime speech Thursday night warning Donald Trump and his MAGA supporters are threatening the foundations of the republic. Biden spoke in Philadelphia in front of Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution were debated and signed. This is part of President Biden's speech. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know, because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election, and they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. They look at the mob that stormed the United States Capitol on January 6th, brutally attacking law enforcement, not as insurrectionists who placed a dagger at the throat of our democracy, but they look at them as patriots and they see their MAGA failure to stop a peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election 
as preparation for the 2022 and 2024 elections. They tried everything last time to nullify the votes of 81 million people. This time, they're determined to succeed in thwarting the will of the people. That's why respected conservatives like Federal Circuit Court Judge Michael Ludwig has called Trump and the extreme MAGA Republicans, quote, a clear and present danger to our democracy. President Biden speaking in Philadelphia Thursday night. He went on to say the soul of the nation is at stake. I ran for president because I believe we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. I still believe that to be true. I believe the soul is the breath, the life, and the essence of who we are. The soul is what makes us us. The soul of America is defined by the sacred proposition that all are created equal in the image of God, that all are entitled to be treated with decency, dignity, and respect, that all deserve justice and a shot at lives of prosperity and consequence, and that democracy, democracy must be defended, for democracy makes all these things possible. President Biden speaking Thursday night, just after the speech, Democracy Now! reached Ben Jealous, president of People for the American Way, former head of the NAACP, to get his response. Tonight, we saw Joe Biden give the most presidential speech he's ever given as president. I say this as somebody who's both been a friend of Joe for a long time in politics and yet also taking serious issue when I thought that he was moving in the wrong direction. I was arrested for voting rights protests five times in front of his White House last year. And what we saw tonight was exactly the president we need in this moment. He was confident. He was clear about big victories for the climate, big victories for students, big victories for the economy. He was also very clear that he was drawing a line between MAGA extremists Patriots are the rest of this nation. He was very clear that we were at an existential moment, a moment I think most of us feel in our bones. And he was also clear as a student of history that we have been through worse and triumphed over it. To talk more about President Biden's speech, we're joined by Nancy McLean, author of the book Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right stealth plan for America, professor of history and public policy at Duke University in North Carolina. She's actually joining us now from Raleigh. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Professor McLean. Why don't you start off by sharing your overall response to the speech at Independence Hall in Philadelphia? Thank you, Amy. It's good to be with you again. My overall response is that this was the most important speech of President Joe Biden's political career, and it was a wake-up call to the nation and particularly to the mainstream media in the nick of time. He was absolutely right, in my uh, opinion, that the Trump uh, wing of the party and the MAGA Republicans have jumped the rails of constitutional democracy, of the factual universe, and of 
representative democracy. You cannot have a democracy in which one party does not accept the legitimacy of the other party's uh, candidates, elected officials, and the outcomes of elections. But that is where we have come with Donald Trump and the MAGA faction since they first uh, questioned the legitimacy of, of President Obama's election and denied that he had been born in America. That was the start of the, the all that has ensued since. And it's really important that President Biden called that out for the nation. I want to go back to President Biden speaking last night in Philadelphia. Today, there are dangers around us we cannot allow to prevail. We hear you've heard it. More and more talk about violence as an acceptable political tool in this country. It's not. It can never be an acceptable tool. So I want to say this plain and simple. There is no place for political violence in America, period, none, ever. We saw law enforcement brutally attacked on January the 6th. We've seen election officials, poll workers, many of them volunteers of both parties, subject to intimidation and death threats. And can you believe it? FBI agents just doing their job as directed, facing threats to their own lives from their own fellow citizens. On top of that, there are public figures today, yesterday and the day before, predicting and all but calling for mass violence and rioting in the streets. This is inflammatory. It's dangerous. It's against the rule of law. And we, the people, must say this is not who we are. President Biden speaking at Independence Hall last night in Philadelphia, the second of three trips to Pennsylvania in just a matter of days. His third one will be in the next few days. Professor McLean, as he talks about political violence, um, you have said the best predictor for a successful coup is a failed coup for which there is no accountability. Talk about the political violence, how it's been dealt with, what it means and what should be done. Yes, thank you. Uh, and I think that's extremely important for people to understand. And that's not just me speaking. That is the consensus of comparative political scientists who study coups. Uh, so absolutely, we do not yet have accountability at the highest levels for the events of January 6th and the ongoing criminal conspiracy against our country that has been more than demonstrated by the uh, House Select Committee to investigate the events of January 6th. And the problem is that if you don't have accountability, those acts become normalized and the people who engage in them become emboldened to go become more aggressive, more violent, more threatening. And I think, you know, something that Biden said at the very top of his remarks is, is extremely important, that so much that has happened in recent years and certainly in the last uh, year is not normal. And the problem that I see as an educator is that there are young people growing up who have known nothing else but this this moment. And there are many of us who have been so, you know, bruised and uh, by 
by the pandemic and inured by, you know, years of this this Trump rhetoric and aggression and that coming from his followers, that we can start to think that this is how a normal democracy functions. But it is not. The United States has slipped radically down the scale of healthy democracies. 10 is the highest rating you can get by 2021. Global evaluators were saying that we were down at five with Poland, Slovenia and Hungary. Hungary is interesting because the MAGA Republicans and figures like Tucker Carlson look to Hungary's leader, Viktor Orban, as a model. And he is a model for them of how to use democracy to completely undermine democracy and make it impossible to remove an authoritarian leader. So Biden's calling out of all this is extremely important because we have allowed ourselves to get to the point where threats and intimidation and violence are routinely used to intimidate people. Let me be frank. This is terrorism. It has been directed most recently at the FBI, at our National Archives, where the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are housed. It has been directed at teachers and school boards. It has been directed at public health officials. It has been directed at uh, Dr. Fauci and his family. And yet mainstream news continues to practice both sidesism, continues to pretend that these things are just partisan. You know, I, am, I was so glad that you were doing this extended segment on uh, uh, President Biden's speech because I was shocked last night to learn that three major news networks were not carrying the speech. Even NPR, when I got up uh, this morning uh, and turned on the radio, they gave it the most minimal coverage and just put it in the context of the midterms as though this was politics as usual. And I think that's the exact opposite of the message the president was rightly trying to send. We faced existential threats to democracy in America, and they are coming from one place, from Donald Trump and those he has persuaded uh, to follow him with the big lie, with a calculated system of media disinformation. And what's most important is that he and the donors behind this and that media have also uh, cowed every Republican elected official in office except Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, both of whom have been defeated, and others less well-known who have spoken the truth, who has stood up to Donald Trump and who have stood up to the lies, who have lost office or are leaving office because they know they cannot be reelected by this MAGA party. We are absolutely, as the president said, at an inflection point in our country, and we must take stock and treat the coming midterms as truly the chance we have to save democracy from further wreckage. There's no point in talking about candidates for 2024 if we do not stop the election deniers and the election riggers from gaining control in state after swing state as they are trying to now. Those are the people who won all the Republican primaries. I wanted to go to Donald Trump, who appeared on Newsmax this week, admitted he's financially supporting people arrested during the January 6th insurrection and more. So I met with a number of times, but I met with and I'm financially supporting people that uh, are incredible. And they were in my office actually two days ago. It's very much on my mind. It's a disgrace what they've done to them. What they've done to these people, it's disgraceful. And and mostly, I mean, you know, it's it's the firemen, they're policemen, they're 
There are people in the military. And I will tell you, I will look very, very favorably about, about full pardons. If I decide Amen. to run and if I win, I will be looking mm. very, very strongly about pardons. Amen. Full pardons. So... President Donald Trump, former, who um, is signaling he might be running again, that he would give them full pardons, and also talking about police and firefighters that he's supporting. In fact, a former New York police officer was just sentenced to 10 years in prison. That's the latest news out from yesterday, uh, because he attacked a police officer with an American flag pole. If you can talk about what he has just said, Professor McLean. Yeah. What he has just said, Amy, is something that should terrify us all. We have seen a Republican Party over the years that has tried to treat the rival party of Democrats as illegitimate, ever since the days of Newt Gingrich, using language that's inflammatory, tossing around words like treason. Well, frankly, what Donald Trump just described was treasonous conduct. He is talking about issuing blanket pardons to people who waged an attack on our country, an attack that took the lives of ultimately seven police officers, that resulted in millions of dollars worth of damage, that desecrated our capital and shamed us before the world. And he is talking about financially supporting those people and plans to issue pardons to them. And not only is he not calling them criminals, people who violated the law, engaged in violence, attacked our country, he is actually elevating them as heroes. And here I want to go back to something that uh, Joe Biden said that got him in a lot of trouble with Republicans because he called out something accurate. When he used that phrase semi-fascist uh, the other day to describe the MAGA Republicans, I believe that was an apt phrase. We are not in a fascist situation in America, but we have elected officials and their followers in one party behaving in a fascistic way. Donald Trump just illustrated that with his um, lionization of people who engaged in criminal violence. This is extremely important because if you look back to the interwar period that brought us the regime of Mussolini, which is marking its 100th anniversary this year of the March on Rome and later Hitler, they started with that kind of violence, that kind of celebration of violence, and also an effort to conquer major institutions of the society and make them serve this project. Look at what Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans are doing. They are trying to conquer critical institutions. He has pardoned people in the military who engaged in illegal conduct. He has lifted them up as heroes. He has now elevated, as you're saying, those police officers who violated the law, you know, on January 6th. We have had, again, such attacks on election boards and public health uh, workers in this country and on teachers that we are seeing hemorrhaging in those fields. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough public health people. We don't have enough uh, people in so many of the core institutions of our society. We also have Republicans attacking the domain where I work, higher education, spreading lies, attacking teachers, trying to divide students and faculty from community 
We are at red alert stage. In military terms, it is DEFCON 1 for democracy in America, and it's time that the mainstream media started to recognize that. President Biden gave us the call and said exactly what is happening in very clear and eloquent terms, so we can only hope that Americans respond calmly, deliberately, uh, and, 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 and with determination to alert their neighbors, to canvas for these midterms, to make sure people understand the high stakes of these elections. It is only the people who will be the guardrails of our democracy responding in a calm, nonviolent, determined way to ensure that we still have a democracy for generations to come for our children and grandchildren. Professor McLean, you've also made it clear that um, this is not just about President Trump, uh, saying that our situation is driven by our extreme right fossil fuel and dirty industry donors who have radicalized the Republican Party. Can you elaborate? Yes. Thank you, Amy, for raising that, because the, the donor question has all but fallen out of so much of the conversation and of the media attention uh, to the problems we're facing. But this is what I researched for Democracy in Chains, and particularly the Koch network of donors convened by Charles Koch, the CEO of Koch Industry, one of the richest men in the world, who has convened other wealthy donors, not only in the United States, by the way, but globally, particularly from the fossil fuel sector, tobacco, and other dirty industries to try to shackle democracy. They have supported this Republican Party. They were the ones who drove it to the far right with the Tea Party, you know, and before that, the, the uh, efforts of the radical Republicans like Newt Gingrich uh, in Congress. They are a serious threat to our democracy. And actually, this is one of the interesting things that distinguishes our moment from the interwar period. That, that saw Mussolini and Hitler come to power. Mussolini and Hitler came up from the streets through street fighting and radical violence, and then later won the backing of right-wing sections of capital and other institutions like the church and the military. In our country, we've seen something different. These dark money, fossil fuel donors, led above all by Charles Koch, have so poisoned the workings of our electoral system that we are in this position. And we will not solve this problem that we face. We will not get out of this crisis unless we address that dark money, not only the money going to elected officials, but the money that is going tax-free to fund an apparatus of literally hundreds of organizations that are polluting our public debate, that are turning us against one another, that are distorting and deforming our institutions and that have brought us to this precipice. Last question, Nancy McLean. Before you wrote Democracy in Chains, um, you wrote Behind the Mask of Chivalry, the Making of the Second Ku Klux Klan, published decades ago. But there you look at that period in the 1920s, right around the time um, in the 20s, 30s, when you had Mussolini and you had Hitler rising to power, but in the United States, uh, where you looked at how some five million ordinary white Protestant men joined the second Ku Klux Klan in the 20s. Do you see parallels to today? 
Yes, Amy, and it, it really it gives me chills to say it. And sadly, the book is getting a second life all these years later, because it's not just me. Ordinary Americans see the parallels. Donald Trump has, in this radicalized Republican Party, has breathed life into these white supremacist, white nationalist forces. It's no longer the Ku Klux Klan in the forefront, but we see groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and all these, you know, kind of freelance militias uh, who are committed to a set of ideas very much like those of the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, and milder forms of which are embraced by this MAGA faction of the Republican Party, namely the idea that only certain people are legitimate Americans, particularly white, middle-class Christians, that other people don't belong, that they're there on suffrage, that—sufferance, that, uh, rather, that, that white Christian Americans have the right to run the country, have the right to drive others out or subdue them, uh, and have the right to dictate, and that somehow that is God-given, and that those elements of our history that President Biden referenced last night, the ideals of the Declaration of independence, that all men are created equal, um, that all people deserve dignity and voice. That is a reaction against that. It is a rejection of the multiracial democracy uh, and the, the country that is supposed to be open to the progress and achievement of all. So these ideas, sadly, have come back to us. It's like rocks have been lifted up around the country and oxygen has been given to these forces that were always there, but not encouraged in the way that they have been in the last uh, several years of Donald Trump's dominance of the public discussion. So, again, I think President Biden was absolutely right to say, to mention white supremacists and to say that this is an emergency for our country and that we all must pay attention and, if we care about democracy, commit to making sure it will last and it will work for all of us. Nancy McLean, author of the book Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right's Stealth Plan for America, professor of history and public policy at Duke University in North Carolina. Next up, as millions of Californians face extreme heat, we go to Los Angeles to look at the city's most vulnerable, the unhoused, and the programs to place them in vacant hotel rooms. 60,000 unhoused on any given night, 20,000 vacant hotel rooms. Stay with us. P.O. promised me a three-quarter house. This breeze on my neck, now they're telling me I'm denied, denied. Back in the city, which way, what street, train stop, bus stop, I might be lost off the Bedford Atlantic. To stand in line for four hours Just to get to the window And it went something like this What bed you in? I'm here to get a bed Where you from, Bellevue Shelter? No, I'm here to get a bed You gotta go to Bellevue Denied again Denied, denied Exhausted, beat but not broken Finally got the Bellevue Homeless shelter Now the man is telling me You can stay for the night 
Plastic Bag by Carl Dukes, released by Die Jim Crow Records. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We turn to California in the middle of a record-breaking heat wave with temperatures 10 to 20 degrees hotter than usual. We're talking about breaking three digits, over 100 degrees uh, in some places in the region. That's Fahrenheit. Some of those most vulnerable are the more than 150,000 people who are experiencing homelessness across the state. In Los Angeles County, there are an estimated 60,000 people who are unhoused, even as some 20,000 hotel rooms remain vacant. Last week, Governor Gavin Newsom announced new funding for the state's Home Key program to create homes for people exiting homelessness. It builds on a program called Project Room Key, which sheltered thousands of people experiencing homelessness during the pandemic at hotels and motels and is now set to end. Governor Newsom spoke at a news conference alongside Democratic California Congress member Karen Bass, who's running for mayor of Los Angeles. The event was in her congressional district, a neighborhood where she grew up. To be here today and to see this development, this is a very exciting step in the right direction. When the pandemic hit in Congress, we knew who was going to be impacted the most, and we fought hard to send resources to Los Angeles for Project Room Key and Project Home Key. And I want to congratulate again the governor for the leadership and the foresight to say that these projects have to continue. It's not just at the height of the pandemic, but homelessness has continued, and we need to have this support on an ongoing basis. And I want folks to know uh, they shouldn't give up. I want folks to know we're just winding up. I want folks to know we're just getting started. Let me be specific about that. The Congresswoman was instrumental in helping us draw down federal money to do something that never been done in the United States, and that's where this room key model came from. We were actually able to use $846 million of federal money not a, a dollar of state money, drew down $846 million. And in six months, we were able to procure, bring into a portfolio over 6,000 housing units, unprecedented in the state's history. Do the math on that. We took that model. And because of the leadership of Karen Bass and others, we were able to get the Biden administration to extend that program. That's the spirit of this moment and allowed us to take that original vision and now replicate it, where, as Gustavo said, we now have, with today's announcement, and within a few days when people move in, to be technically correct, 12,500 units we've brought online in just a matter of a couple of years. California Governor Gavin Newsom's multi-billion dollar homeless housing project comes as the Los Angeles City Council recently voted to put on the 2024 ballot an initiative called the Responsible Hotel Ordinance to House Homeless People in Vacant Rooms. The measure was drafted by the union Unite Here, Local 11, which represents most of Los Angeles hospitality workers. They've also endorsed Congressmember Karen Bass for mayor. For more, we go to Los Angeles. We're joined by three guests. 
guests. Will Sens is with us. He's been in Project Room Key at the L.A. Grand Hotel since March of 2021. Before that, he was a resident of the Echo Park Lake Encampment. He's a founding member of Unhoused Tenants Against Carceral Housing. We're also joined by UCLA professor Ananya Roy. She directs the Institute on Inequality and Democracy, which is home to the After Echo Park Lake Research Collective, that brings together university and movement-based scholars with unhoused comrades like Will to study displacement in Los Angeles. And we're joined by Kurt Peterson, co-president for Unite Here Local 11. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Kurt, let's begin with you. Talk about this program. So, Project Roomkey, um, in our view, uh, was a brilliant idea. Um, we had, during the pandemic, um, the entire city uh, was uh, bereft of, of tourists. And so uh, there were tens of thousands, uh, hundred thousand hotel rooms that were vacant. We had people who were uh, facing homelessness and, 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 and housing insecurity. And we had hotel workers who were uh, unemployed. And so the idea was, can we marry those three problems in this program? And um, it worked. Um, we were able to put 10,000 um, unhoused folks into hotels like Will in one of our uh, downtown properties, uh, the, 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 the L.A. Grand, where our members work proudly um, in this program and have found it uh, beneficial because they kept their jobs. Um, and we were able to put people uh, in these vacant rooms. And uh, frankly, the hotel industry itself um, got a source of revenue that they otherwise would not have gotten. So what we decided to do after that program was how can we um, further uh, not only this program, but how can we uh, how can the hotel industry, how can our members um, alleviate this crisis? And so we went door to door and collected one hundred and twenty six thousand signatures from L.A. voters. And an overwhelmingly positive response um, on an initiative that would do two things. One, it would require that hotel developers that bulldoze housing when they build their hotels, that they must replace that housing. In the last decade, thousands of units have been lost because luxury hotel developments have bulldozed and not replaced housing. And secondly, we said, let's put into place uh, permanently a voucher system for folks who are unhoused, and let's make sure that going forward, um, hotels need to um, respect those vouchers and allow people to uh, sleep in their rooms um, because that's the right thing. And it worked during the pandemic in Project Room Key, and we think it needs to be uh, used going forward. So it will be on the ballot in March of 2024. We feel confident it will pass, and we feel like it's the right thing to do as Angelinos who are facing this extraordinarily uh, difficult time of, of, of the lack of affordable housing and a large unhoused population. Let me bring Will Sons into this conversation. Uh, you've been in Project Room Key at the L.A. Grand Hotel uh, for well over a year. In fact, you're joining us from there right now. Um, you are also a um, founding member of Unhoused Tenants Against Carceral Housing. Talk about why this program is important, what it means to you, how you become unhoused, and then what it means to be at the hotel. Will, are you there? Well, it is important. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay, great. Um, the project room key is important to help people um, to have a place to stay 
and to get themselves together on the pathway to a new house, to, to a place where they can uh, gain stability. Um, it's, it's a, when used proper, properly, it should be like a satellite station for people to be able to find new employment and to be able to kind of get their, their selves together, get their things together um, to be able to move into a new situation in life and better their lives. Um, um, unfortunately, it hasn't been happening uh, quite so clearly as that for most people um, so far in the program. Let me ask Ananya Roy, um, who is professor of urban planning, social welfare and geography now at UCLA, uh, where she directs the Institute on Inequality and Democracy, which is home to the After Echo Park Lake Research Collective, bringing together scholars, um, unhoused comrades, as you say, to study displacement in Los Angeles. Talk about the significance of Project Roomkey, but first, about the unhoused population of this country. Yes, first of all, Amy, thank you for having us on the show. I think it's important for us to take stock of the moment at hand, because the moment at hand is a time of mass homelessness. We are also in this country, including here in Los Angeles, on the cusp of mass evictions that will greatly increase mass homelessness. At the same time, what is going on is unregulated corporate acquisition of rental property. Wall Street has gone on a buying spree during the pandemic as it did during the Great Recession. And yet the policy response in so many cities has been inadequate and, as in the case of Los Angeles, has overwhelmingly focused on the criminalization of homelessness. I also want to say that this is not a question of resource scarcity. Uh, the clip you paid from Governor Newsom's speech talks very much about the vast federal resources that are available for housing and homelessness. And what the governor didn't talk about is that California itself has a massive budget surplus. Our concern with Project Roomkey, with Project Homekey, is that these programs are minuscule in scale in response to mass homelessness. They also go hand in hand, often with the criminalization of homelessness, and that they place people in programs with conditions and rules that we describe as carcerality that in fact impose carceral isolation and surveillance on poor people that does not, as Will just pointed out, allow them to make the move to permanent dignified housing. So we're seeing a perverse investment of vast public resources often in carceral shelter and containment rather than in permanent social housing. Let me ask you about the opponents to Project Roomkey, like Stuart Waldman, president of the Valley Industry and Commerce Association, representing hotels and businesses across North Los Angeles. This is Waldman speaking to CNN. 
I wouldn't want my kids around people that I'm not sure about. I wouldn't want to be in an elevator with somebody who's clearly having a mental break. The idea that you can intermingle homeless folks with paying normal gas just doesn't work out. Your response, Professor Ananya Roy. What we're hearing here is the constant dehumanization of our unhoused neighbors. This has become commonplace. It is now expressed in a whole series of policies, including LA's notorious anti-camping law that LA City Council continues to expand. What we have at hand is what we call the racial banishment of our unhoused neighbors such that there is no place for them to go. I also want to be clear that the idea of hotels as housing really comes as a demand from unhoused communities during the pandemic. It also comes from movements that pointed out that these hotels, which are seemingly private property, actually are backed by massive public subsidies, millions of dollars in tax tax breaks, for example, that have made possible this kind of urban development. So these vacant hotels, in fact, signify a public stake in property. And we should, in fact, think about, as Unite Here is doing, about how this vacant property is used for purposes of housing. My concern has to do with the scale. My concern has to do with how it is not sufficient to do this if we are also criminalizing homeless communities and that, in fact, We cannot do this by imposing carceral conditions and rules on those who will reside in Project Home Key or Project Room Key. Professor Roy, there's all this infusion of funds, but with the pandemic restrictions lifting, you're seeing the end of um, the subsidies. Are you concerned about mass evictions? Yes, we were the first research center in the country to sound the alarm bell on impending evictions with a landmark report by Professor Gary Blasey that went on to be the basis of several eviction moratoria, including that in California. That was May 2020. And Professor Blasey predicted that half a million renters in L.A. County would be at the risk of eviction without eviction protections. We are now on the cusp of those evictions. It is crucial to keep people in their homes, including through rent debt cancellation and other forms of tenant protections. It's crucial to stop the criminalization of our unhoused neighbors. And it's also crucial to use those public resources in an ambitious program of social housing, where housing is a social right and is not conditional upon racialized and gendered rules and conditions. Let me ask Will Sens. A report has come out of UCLA, um, where Professor Roy is. 1,500 unhoused L.A. residents died on the streets during the pandemic. Um, As you speak uh, from a hotel room, do you feel um, that this is the answer, that attitudes are changing? Well, well, let me ask, let me put that question um, to Kurt Peterson uh, very quickly um, of uh, the local president of uh, Unite Here, uh, Local 11. Um, You're concerned that some of your own members of the hospitality uh, community could become unhoused themselves. They're a step away. 
It, they are unhoused. Um, our, uh, we recently lost a member who died in her van uh, because she you know, couldn't keep uh, paying her rent and was evicted. Our folks are moving further and further out of Los Angeles because they can't afford to live here. Professor Roy we have is 10 exactly seconds. right. Exactly right. We need a massive infusion of resources to house folks uh, in Los Angeles. Project Room Key is one piece of the puzzle, but much, much more is needed. And we're supportive of everything that keeps people housed in Los Angeles. We're going to look at so much more. I want to thank you for being with us. Um, Kurt Peterson, co-president for Unite Here Local 11, Professor Ananya Roy and Will Sens. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.